Welcome to the North Shore Church audio podcast. To find out more information about North Shore Church, please visit us at mynsag.com. We hope you enjoyed today's message. If you brought your Bible, go ahead and turn to Luke chapter 15. Luke chapter 15, if you have an electronic Bible, will be out of the ESV version. If not, all of our scripture that we'll be reading will be on the screen so you can follow along that way. <clears throat> How many of you are lifelong Nebraskans? You lived in Nebraska your entire life. Let me see your hands. Lots of you. Wow. Lifelong Nebraskans. Maybe, maybe you've gone off to college for two, three, four, some of you doctors, maybe seven years, right? Um, and then you came back. But lifelong Nebraskans. Let me see those hands one more time. Awesome. We've got a lot of lifelong Huskers in here. Life, life is a little different in Husker Nation, isn't it? Um, the people in general have a tendency to be a, a little bit more friendly, that the pace doesn't seem to be as hectic as it is in other places. Um, you got some of the buildings and the cities and, and the shopping centers here in the state of Nebraska are a little bit smaller. Uh, I, I mean, when you have Husker Game Day and Memorial Stadium becomes the third largest city in the state of Nebraska, you know things are a little different here, right? Um, so so it's, it's, it's like that. Um, we're okay with that, though, aren't we? We're okay with the pace being a little bit slower and the towns and the cities being a little bit smaller. We don't have a problem with that. Now, here's another question. Um, for those of you who grew up in Nebraska, in the small towns, Nebraska, like real Nebraska, not Lincoln or Omaha, but like real Nebraska, um, those of you who grew up in real Nebraska, how many of you remember the very first time you saw an escalator? Let me see your hands. You remember the first time you saw an escalator, like this magical invention of moving stairs, right? I remember I was pretty little when, when I, I saw an escalator for the first time. I think we were in a mall in Lincoln or Omaha like that. But you see this, and it's like this glorious thing. It's like a light from heaven with the angels singing like, oh, there's an escalator. And, and it was just awesome. It was awesome. I remember as a little kid, like, stepping on it, and then it starts moving. You feel like you're surfing a little bit. And it's just like this, wee all the way up. It seemed like a ride that you didn't have to pay for, right? It was just so, so cool. And, and when you were kids, you just thought, Mom, look, you go shopping. I'm going to stay here and ride the escalator. How many of you sent your mom or your dad off and stayed and rode the escalator? A few of you? Okay, good. I wasn't the only one. We were like, hey, this is awesome. And then you try to go up the down escalator. It's really cool. It's really cool. But the escalators, and now many of you, you know, in real Nebraska, you go uh, traveling in one of those cities and place has an escalator and you put your kids on the escalator for the very first time. You've read the articles about the escalators, like catching somebody, so you'd be real careful. You got your kid's hand, and you're like, okay, let's take a step. And they step on and they almost fall, but you keep them going and when they get to the very top, you say, okay, we're coming to the end. You still got their hand. and Okay, I'm, I want you to jump off, right? How many of you have done this? I want you to jump off. You're going to jump off at the end. So you step over the thing, but jump off. And they're holding your hand, and they jump way too early. And so you have to hold them with the one arm, and they spin like a pinata, like their arms. You know what I'm talking about? How many of you know what I'm talking about with those kids, grandkids? Right? <clears throat> but that's what it's like growing up in Nebraska. That's what, that's what it means to be a Nebraskan. But the overwhelming joy and the utter bliss that we've all experienced in riding that escalator for the very first time wears off pretty quick, doesn't it? It does. It doesn't take too long before this magical experience of riding 
stairs that move just becomes ordinary. It becomes thoughtless. It becomes effortless. It, it, it becomes a tool to move you from where you are to where you uh, want to go with the smallest amount of effort possible, right? Stairs that move were created for us people who just embrace and love to be lazy. Am I right? Come on, it's stairs that move, right? And uh, it's effortless, it's thoughtless, it's easy. There is no work to it at all. And today we're going to start a new series that we are calling Get Off the Escalator. Get Off the Escalator. Because I believe that in our understanding of Christianity, in what we believe it is to be a Christ follower, in, in what we believe it is to have a relationship with our Heavenly Father, and what we believe it is to be in intimacy with the one who is awesome and glorious and beautiful and matchless, what we believe it is to be a Christian, for many of us, we've relegated it to a ride on the escalator. We've jumped on some sort of a spiritual escalator, and as we're moving, transitioning, we see the landscape around us changing. Um, we start feeling pretty good about ourselves. We start feeling pretty accomplished because we think that we're making real progress. But the reality is that most of us are just standing still. And because the world is changing, it feels like we're going somewhere. Because um, the church life is changing, it feels like we're going somewhere. Because uh, our, our, our family, our job situation is changing, it feels like we're going somewhere. But the reality is most of us, when it comes to our relationship with the Lord, are just standing completely still. And around us, somebody else or something else is doing all the work. And it feels like things are changing. And you may be moving, but you're not necessarily growing. And that's a problem for many of us. So over the next few weeks, we're going to use this analogy of an escalator to help us understand what I believe the Holy Spirit is trying to say to us, his church, as we move forward in understanding the relationship and intimacy that he has designed for us. Get off the escalator. Turn to the person sitting next to you and say, get off the escalator. Get off the escalator. Luke chapter 14, Luke chapter 14, starting in verse 11 Jesus is telling a story. He's talking to the Pharisees. Basically, the Pharisees are the religious people of that day. Uh, the Pharisees were, were the church-going people, these people that have grown up in the church, these people who are supposed to have a lot of answers, these people who, who know the right way to do things and the right way to say things and the right way to pray, and they have, they have a lot of answers, or supposedly, but but what happens is Jesus exposes the reality that these Pharisees have a lot of issues, and he's constantly pressing against the Pharisees. He's constantly exposing the Pharisees. He's constantly addressing some of the, the issues that the Pharisees bring to the understanding of who God is. And so Jesus is telling the Pharisees this story. It's a parable that I'm guessing 90% of you have heard this morning. Um, it's a parable of the prodigal son. In this story of the prodigal son, there is a man that has two sons. One day, the younger son comes up to his father and he says, Dad, look, here's the deal. I'm ready to be out on my own. I want my cut of the inheritance. I, I want what is coming to me. Essentially, he says, like, right now, I'm young, 
I'm fit, I'm good looking. I don't wanna wait till I'm old and busted before I get all of this money. I want it now so I can go out and party. I, I want you know, to have it all. I, I still have time and energy to go out and live it up and I want to go. Essentially he's saying, Dad, I can't wait for you to die. I wish you were dead now so that I could have my cut. So why don't you just give me my cut so I can go out and do this on my own. I got some living to do, I got some partying to do, and I'm ready to do it now. <clears throat> the end of verse 12 says this, and the father divided his property between them. So this younger son, he asks for his inheritance now, his father gives it to him. So he gets his portion of the property, he cashes out, and he goes out into the world to party and to just live it up and just to be a complete sinner, right? That's what he's doing. He wants to go out and sin. Anything he wanted to do, any fleshly desire that he had, he embraced. It was sex, drugs, and rock and roll. and He was just living it up. Well, it didn't take too long for this young son the money to run out, and when the money was gone, he really had no way to finance his sinful and rebellious lifestyle. And so now he's broke, he's far from home, he's completely destitute. All of his friends that were around when he had money had gone and abandoned him, and he doesn't have anywhere else to turn. And so he ends up taking a job working with pigs, and in the Jewish culture, because of the way um, pigs were viewed. Um, both economically and spiritually, this was the most degrading thing that he could have done. This was below rock bottom. It, it was considered filthy and worse than sinful for them to be working with pigs, and that's the only thing that he could find. So this young Jewish boy who was wealthy for a season, now completely broke, is working and more than working, living with the pigs like a pig. And, and the owner of the, the pig farm, he, he didn't give this man a paycheck. He didn't say, okay, work with the pigs, and every Friday I'll give you a paycheck. You can kind of, you know, work yourself out of this and build up some finances to find a place. No, his pay was that he got to eat whatever the farmer gave to the pigs, and so he was there tending the pigs, and his paycheck um, amounted to uh, fighting the pigs for the slop that they were given to eat. This was below rock bottom. It was the worst position that somebody could possibly be in. And one day, as he was there living and working with the pigs, a thought occurred to him. He thought this, even the lowest servant on my father's estate is living better than I am. Perhaps... Maybe I could make my way home. Maybe I can go home and, and, and ask my dad for a job and, and, and come home not as a son, but as a desperate man seeking a job. Perhaps he, he has remembered time and time again of his father employing people in desperate situations, and, and, and he thought, maybe I can go back and just get a job. And so he prepares his apology speech. He's got it all rehearsed, and he makes his way back to his father's house, knowing the shame that he's bringing with him, knowing the embarrassment that he's bringing with him, knowing that he's going to have to face family and friends who know what he's done and, and all of that that it's going to feel. And, and, and he's deciding, even with all of that, I'm going to go home. I have no other option. Perhaps dad will 
give me a job. As he was nearing his father's estate, his father sees a dirty and desperate man walking down the road. He recognizes this man as his son. And as the father looks out and sees this man walking down, knows it's his son, he drops what he's doing. He runs down the road, Scripture says. In my mind, I see the son sort of embracing for a slap in the face because of all the shame and the embarrassment and the financial pain that he caused his father and his family. Um, In that culture, it would have been right and probably appropriate for the father and the community to stone the son because of what he's done. And so as he's embracing for a slap in the face, his father runs towards him, wraps his arms around him, and gives him a kiss on the cheek, hugs him, embraces him as his son. The father rejoiced that his son who had shamed him and embarrassed the family, had come home. My son who was dead is now alive. My son who was lost is now found. And he wraps his arms around him and he just lavishes kisses on him and he celebrates him. You can kind of just see in your mind that he picks him up and twirls him around. He's so excited and so overwhelmed that his son is home. This young man approaches his father's estate hoping to live as a servant, but his father embraced him, celebrated him, and treated him like a son. The reason why this story gets so much run Why we talk about this so much, so often, is because this is a beautiful picture of God's love, his grace, his mercy towards us, a people of God that have rebelled against him, but have found our way home. And it's such a picture of those of us who who maybe at one time or another have had relationship with God, but that have turned our back on him. It's, It's the realization that the second that we turn to God again, he will embrace us with loving kindness and forgiveness and passion. It's a great picture of the heart of our Heavenly Father, and so it's something that we need to keep in our minds and in our hearts often. Verse 25, the story continues, and this is where we're going to pick up the story here in in the scripture that we're reading. It says this, now his older son, the son who stayed there and worked, the son who didn't bring shame on the family, the son who didn't care only about himself at the sake of almost financially ruining ruining the estate, the son who was responsible, the son who was mature, the good son, the older son, the good son, the respectable son, was in the field. Scripture says that as the the younger son was making this walk of shame home, the older son, the good son, was literally out working. While you're playing, while you're ruining your life, the older son, the good son, was out working. And as he came and drew near to the house, he heard music and dancing. And he called one of the servants and asked what these things meant. So he's out working. He comes in from the field, tired from a long day's work, and he hears music. He hears that there's a party started. He doesn't know what's going on. There was nothing planned. And so he asks one of the servants, he says, hey, what's going on? What's the celebration? What is this all about? Verse 27, and the servant said to him, your brother has come and your father has killed the fattened calf because he has received him back safe and sound. Your brother's back. He was gone. We thought he was dead. He's alive. He's back. He was lost. We thought we would never see him again. He's back. Your father is excited. He's throwing a party. He's killing the fattened calf. We are going to celebrate tonight. 
Verse 28, notice the older son's reaction. <clears throat> Scripture says, but he was angry and refused to go in. So his father came out and entreated him, but he answered his father, saying, look, dad, these many years I have served you and I've never disobeyed your command. Yet you never gave me a young goat that I may celebrate with my friends. But when this son of yours, notice he doesn't say when my brother, but he says this son of yours came who has devoured your property with prostitutes, you killed the fattened calf for him. He's saying, look, dad, this is the same guy who said he wished you were dead. He wanted his money so he could leave. This was the same guy who brought shame and disgrace on you, himself, me, and the family. This is the same guy who went and spent all of his money, all of his inheritance on prostitutes. And he's coming back and you're throwing him a party? We ought to put him on trial. We ought to rough him up a little bit. We ought to slap him around for these stupid things that he's done. You're throwing him a party? And the father said to him, son, you're always with me, and all that is mine is yours. It was fitting to celebrate and be glad, for your, for your brother was dead and is alive. He was lost and is found. Your brother's back. We thought he was dead. We thought we'd never see him again, and here he is. I've studied this passage enough to know what Jesus is saying. I know the lesson and the message behind this. I've heard lots of sermons on the prodigal son. I've, I've heard sermons on the older brother. We're going to sp spend the remainder of our time talking about some of the mistakes that the older brother makes. But I do think that the older brother makes a lot of good points here. Anybody else think that? Like, I, I think that he has a valid argument. Like as I'm reading this and I'm considering the story, I think now, hang on a second, Dad. Let, let's just hear him out for a second because he's making a lot of good points here. Like this, the younger son, he, he basically destroyed your legacy. He destroyed the estate. He, he's selfish. He's a sinner. He's kind of a dirtbag. And now you're just open arms welcoming him, welcoming him back like nothing ever happened. Like there has to be consequences, right? There has to be consequences. You're not just going to bring him back here and pretend that nothing happened. And, and the, the older brother is, is saying to his dad, how come you're not mad about this? And the older brother is saying, look, I have a right to be upset here. I've been with you my whole life. Anything you asked me to do, I did. When you told me to wake up early in the morning and get out there, I woke up early in the morning and I got out there and you haven't even given me a goat to throw a party and you're killing the fattened cow for this guy. Are you kidding me? I have a right to be angry. And I don't know about you, but I, I know that I've found myself in a place in my life where I've considered everything that's going on, and, and I just thought, man, I have a right to be mad about this. I have every right to be angry. But his father responds with love and kindness. And I, I try to reason with myself as I consider this passage that you know, I kind of side with the older son because you know, there's just a practical side of me. I think it's fair, right? I want to be fair. I try to, I, I, 
I try to justify me siding with the older son because maybe I just have an older brother mentality. I, I have a few younger siblings, and maybe it's just the older brother in me that feels this way. But the reality is that Scripture acts in this case as an x-ray and exposes the broken places in my spirit that I need to address. There's places in Scripture that I side with the Pharisees, then it shows me that I need to do some work inside me. I need to do some work in my life. And so this sermon becomes a little difficult for me to preach because I'm not preaching it necessarily to a church that I feel needs it. I'm preaching it to me, the pastor that I know needs it. And so the remainder of our time, what we're going to do is we're going to identify three things that the older brother has and and really three things that he doesn't. And so the first point that we're going to, to make is this. If you have pen and paper, you're taking notes, you can write this down. He has access without effort. Access without effort. I was listening to a sermon a while back from Stephen Furtick, and he's one of my favorite preachers to listen to, and he was talking about this passage and about the older son's complaint, and it was awesome. I wish I could preach it like him. It's from a series called The Waiting Room. If you you are interested in listening to it, I would encourage you to do it. It's, It's great. And in it, he talked about this passage in a way that I'd never considered before, um, He said that this boy is complaining because his father never gave him a goat so he could have a party with his friends. He says, I've been here working for you this whole time. Every morning, every night, I'm here. I stuck with you. I didn't leave. And you haven't even given me a goat so that I could have a party with my friends. And the father responds. He says, son, look, I haven't given you a goat because All that is mine is yours. I haven't given you a goat because you haven't asked for a goat. But I want you to know, son, that everything that is in my possession is also in your possession. You have access to everything in the estate. He's saying, son, if you want a goat, go get your goat. You know where we keep the goats. Everything that is mine is also yours. If you want a goat, you know where the goat pen is. Go get a goat. There's nothing in this estate that I have kept from you. There is nothing in my possession that I have not given you access to. All that is mine is also yours. If you want a goat, go get a goat. And listen, church, listen, believers, prodigal sons, older sons, no matter what type of relationship you are in with God, as we step into intimacy with God, as we step into relationship with God, all that God has, he has given us access to. Now listen, as believers, that means that we have access to the glories and the riches and the promises and the miracles of God. God says, all that is mine is yours, and we have access to it. Scripture says he has adopted us into the family as sons. He treats us as sons, not servants. He's given us the spirit of adoption by which we cry, Abba, Father that takes us to a different level of relationship with God that we don't really have to ask permission for anything. He said, if you want a goat, go get a goat because you know where we keep the goats. All that is mine, all that is mine is yours. And this is the problem with the spiritual escalator that we jump on. 
We get so used to having everyone else do everything else for us that we forget that we have access to everything that the Father has. We become so dependent on everybody else doing everything for us that we forget that we have access to the glories and the riches and the miracles and the promises of God. Just unwilling to put forth any effort so we never attain it. And this father is saying, look, you want a goat? Go get a goat. You know where we keep the goats. I'm not keeping the goats from you. You want it, go get it. We see new believers all the time, and, and, and man, I'm the, I'm, the, I'm the oldest son in this. I see new believers all the time. I, I see uh, maybe believers who, who have rebelled and have come back, and, and they come back, and, and they're so full of joy, right? They have so much joy and happiness. It's just oozing out of them, and it just makes me sick, right? Like they're just happy all the time. How can you be so happy? And I look at how happy they are, and they're just walking around, and how happy and full of joy, and saying, God is so good, and, and my life is so great now because of everything that God has done in my life, and they're just happy and full of joy. And I think, God, I've been serving you for all of these years. I've been working in the church. I've been slaving away at North Shore and doing all this stuff and trying to help everybody, and they got all of this happiness. How are you going to give them all of this joy? And I'm over here just bitter and cranky all the time. Right? Just joy just makes me sick to see them happy all the time. What do they have to be happy about, right? Sometimes it just irritates me. But I'm the, I'm the older son, right? I'm, I'm the older son. And it's like God's saying to me, look, just because they have access, what I've given them access to, just because they've latched on what I've given them access to doesn't make it my fault that you haven't. Chris, you want joy, you know where we keep the joy. Go get it. God's not keeping it from me. God's not hiding it so that I can't have joy. And I look at them and I think, you just wait, you serve God for a couple years like me, you'll be bitter and cranky like me too, right? Like, that's not the answer either. God is saying, you know where the joy is. You know where we keep the joy. Go get it. He's not going to wrestle me to the ground and rip my mouth open and pour joy down my throat like it's trying to give me medicine. Squeeze my nose. Swallow it. Take it. Oh, you know? It says, you know where we keep the joy. If you want it, go get it. All that is mine is yours. Psalm 119, verse 111 says this, Your testimonies are my heritage forever, for they are the joy of my heart. Nehemiah 8 says, For the joy of the Lord is your strength. You want joy? Go get joy. You know where we keep the joy. If you want freedom, go get it. As a son and daughter of God, you have access to freedom. Makes no sense that we as believers, as we, have, we as children of God, will walk around for decades in bondage. Makes no sense. Jesus came, and because of his life, death, and resurrection, he guaranteed our freedom. Guaranteed our freedom. 
But we walk around in bondage all the time and we look, at, we look at new believers, we look at people who are radically set free from a life of whatever and, and we look at them and we say, how do they attain their freedom and we can't because we're not trying. Galatians chapter five says, for the freedom Christ, for freedom Christ has set us free. Stand firm therefore and do not submit again to a yoke of slavery. You want freedom The Father says, you know where we keep the freedom. You have access to it. Go get it. Go get it. We have to stop believing this fairy tale that if we want freedom, all we have to do is find the freedom escalator, take one step, say, yes, I want freedom, stand on it, and then let somebody else do all the work. That's not the way it works. If you want peace, go get it. How many of you need peace this morning? You have access to peace. How many of you need freedom? You have access to freedom. How many of you need joy? You have access to joy. Philippians chapter four, verse six, says this. Do not be anxious about anything. Don't worry about anything. But in everything, by prayer and supplication, with thanksgiving, let your requests be made known to God. And the peace of God, which surpasses all understanding, will guard your hearts and your minds in Christ Jesus. Heavenly Father says it's there. Go get it. You need peace. You know where we keep the peace. Go get it. You have access to it. But it does take some work. You do have to put forth a little bit of effort. The pastor's not going to wave a magic peace wand for you and do all the work for you. That's not the way it works. Get off the escalator. Stop thinking that it's everybody else's job to take you to that place of freedom. Stop thinking that it's everybody else's job to bring you joy or everybody else's job to bring you peace. It's not. You know where we keep the peace. You know where we keep the joy. You know where we keep the the freedom. Go and get it. And if you don't know where we keep the joy, the peace, and the freedom, then you need to do some work by reading your scripture, by digging and mining all of the goods out of the scripture so that you can have access to it. Like, look, maybe you don't know the directions. Maybe you don't know how to find it. Maybe you don't know where to go. It's in here. Go and find it and claim it and latch on to it. It's in there. It's in there. Access without any effort is stupidity. It doesn't make any sense. Number two, he had a name without nature. The characters in this story aren't given any names. They're just the father, the oldest son, the younger son. But for the sake of discussion here this morning, let's call the father John. Let's give him a name. Let's call the oldest son John Jr. He's the firstborn. We'll call him John Jr. They may not have shared a first name. They may not have shared a last name even. I don't know how the last name stuff worked back then. So don't get mad if they didn't share a name. I don't know. Just follow me here. But let's consider again the difference in the reactions to the return of the prodigal son, John III, we'll call him. So John and John Jr. reacted as differently as you could possibly imagine. When he found out that his son was coming home, John, the father, ran toward him. John Jr. refused to be in the same room as him. See the difference? John rejoiced. John Jr. rejected. John, the father, was filled with joy. John Jr., the oldest son, was filled with anger and rage. John threw a party. 
John Jr. had his own little pity party that he threw for himself. They reacted completely different. You see, though they shared a name, they didn't share a nature. And John Jr., though heir to the estate, was nothing like his father. In fact, the only thing that they shared was a name and nothing else. We can see in the story that the older brother's spirit was crushed because his father was so quick to forgive his younger brother. It offended him that he was so willing to forgive. At some point along the way, John Jr. jumped on the escalator and let the name of his father carry him along, never working to understand or mimic or follow his father's nature. Can I tell you something this morning? Just because you self-identify as a Christian doesn't mean you are one. If the blessings and the kindness of God towards a sinner or a new immature believer frustrates you, you're the problem. It's not the sinner. It's not God. It's you. You're the problem. You know, I know that you guys have been paying attention to all the the issues and things that are going on politically in our world today. The transgender bathroom debate has been gaining more and more momentum over these past couple of months. And I know that many of you have been reading about it and praying about it right? You're praying about our nation. You're praying about some of those moral things. If not, start. The people of God need to be praying about those things. But it's been getting some some attention between Target's new, whatever you want to call yourself that day, policy to Obama's mandate to public schools under the threat of pulling federal funding. The bathroom issue continues on with a full head of steam and I'm not super smart politically or even socially, but, but I know that as Bible-believing believers, followers of God, that at least with the the mainstream media, with the the voice that's going out, we oftentimes as Christians find ourselves on the other side of this debate, right? We find ourselves on the other end of this thought and this topic, and, and I think that we are trying to find ways to be able to speak on it and, and not overly offend, but still maintain, at the same time maintain our integrity. And, and we're just, this, is, this is waters that we haven't swam in <clears throat> for a while. And I know it's difficult, but I think that we ought to be able to speak what's true. And this, I believe to, to be true, and I believe that all of us know that this is true, that just because a man puts a dress on and goes into a woman's bathroom at Target doesn't make him a woman. We know that. Even if he says, I feel like a woman, it doesn't change things. Even if he says, well, today I self-identify as a woman, it doesn't matter. It's your nature and not your name that reveals who you are. It's what's it, it's, it's what's inside of you and not what you call yourself that reveals who you are. And now listen, I want you to hear me because the older brother loves to focus on other people's sins. And we as the church need to make sure that we're not the older brother. There are some of us here, or some of you, who have self-identified as a Christian. Listen, you call yourself a Christian You convince other people to call you a Christian. You think carrying a Bible and sitting in a service is proof of that, but the reality is it doesn't matter what you call yourself or what you self-identify as. It's your nature and not your name that reveals who you really are. 
doesn't matter what you call yourself. It's your nature and not your name that identifies who you really are. And so the question is, what's your nature look like? Do you respond like the Heavenly Father? Do you forgive like our Heavenly Father? Do you love like our Heavenly Father? Do you show mercy like our Heavenly Father? Or do you stand there and you say, look, I have a right to be angry. This person deserves judgment. They deserve consequences. Do you respond like Jesus, or do you respond like the older brother, the Pharisees? Do you operate with mercy? Do you share the same nature as your Heavenly Father? If not, you're just trying to convince me and everyone else that you're someone that you're not. You're calling yourself something, but it's not who you are. Is there an issue in our world that must be addressed? Is there a sin issue in our world that that must be addressed? Yes, of course there is. We don't even have to look for it anymore. It's just right there. It's obvious. But there's also a sin issue in our church that we do a better job at hiding. We need to address this as well. We better make sure that we're reflecting the character of Christ before we start attacking sinners for pursuing sin. We have to embrace embrace the character and the nature of Christ. A name without nature is nonsense. Worship team, please come. Last point is this. Talk about proximity without priority. There's a difference between what is important and what's most important. We're right now teaching our kids hygiene, brushing teeth, combing hair, you know, washing in their armpits, stuff like that. Wearing clothes that match, right? I know that's difficult. That's hard for me to wear clothes that match. And sometimes I pick out clothes for the kids that don't match, and then Melissa will come home and see them wearing clothes that don't match, and she'll say, why are you wearing that? And I will just kind of fade into the background and not tell them that it was me that picked it. I'll just let them take the heat, man. They're, they're young, they're resilient, they can take it, right? Why did you choose that? I don't know, it's just what they wanted to wear. I don't know. But we try to teach them that this stuff matters. Like what you look like matters. It's important how you present yourself. Your appearance is important, but it's not the most important, right? It's not the most, it's a priority, but it's not the top priority. And John Jr., the older son, was near his father in proximity, but they didn't have the same priorities. And so here's the question. Was the estate important to the oldest son? Yes, of course it was. Scripture says that he was out working in the field. And so the other question that we don't often ask, but we probably should, is was the estate important to the father? I believe it was. This was his lifestyle. This This was his career. This was his job. We have many farmers here in Nebraska, many farmers in this church. They have farmland. Is their farmland important to them? Yes, of course it is. Is it the most important? Well, for some, yes, it is. For some, their farmland is the top priority. For others, they view their farmland as a gift from God that they've been in charge to steward over, that they can use, that they can grow, they can cultivate to further advance forcefully the kingdom of God. And so for some, it's a priority. For some, it's the top priority. And so we asked this about the estate for the father. Was the estate a priority for the father? Yes, I believe it was. Was it his top priority? No. And so 
in, in my mind, we, I always get this picture in my mind of the father standing there at the road for years and years and years, just every day, 24-7, looking out along the dusty road, waiting for his son to return. I don't think that's what Jesus was saying. Because if that's the way this father responded, if every day he shirked all of his other responsibilities, he ignored all other relationships, and he just stood there at the road and looked for his younger son, would he have been a good father? No. No, he wouldn't. He wouldn't. But I believe that the father saw the son walking down the road first because for the father it was his top priority. That it wasn't his estate but his son coming home that was the most important. What is a priority to the heavenly father must be a priority to us as well. What matters to God must matter to us. And I wonder if there was ever a moment in their time together with the father and the oldest son that they were out working in the fields and the oldest son said, Dad, why are you constantly looking out to the north? Why do after every conversation you look that way? How come after everything you fix, you get up and you immediately turn that way? How come when you're working the field, you constantly are looking that way? What are you looking for? I believe that my son is coming home. He has my heart. I believe that he's coming home. And I wonder if there was a point in that relationship that the oldest son had a chance to mimic his father's priority. But he said, man, that's crazy. I wonder if Jesus was here this week. I wonder if Jesus went out to eat with you this afternoon, went out to lunch with you. I wonder what he would notice. I wonder what Jesus would be looking for. I wonder if he would scan the room and identify those people who are hurting, those people who are lost. I wonder if he would scan the room identifying those people who needed to be listened to, who, who needed to be understood. I wonder if that's his priority. And so my question for me as the oldest son, my question for many of you as the oldest sons, is how many of you have noticed those people this week? How many of you have scanned the room, friends, family, acquaintances, and looked for those people who are hurting, who are lost, who, who just needed a touch from Jesus? What matters to God must matter to us. What's important to God must be important to us. Stand your feet all across this place. As Christians, we can't be content with a thoughtless and effortless escalator relationship. We have to get off the escalator. We can't just be content to be near like the oldest son. We have to be actively growing and developing our relationship. Bow your heads, close your eyes all across this place. Many of you, you're here, you feel like you've been on that escalator for far too long. You've just been riding along, you haven't been doing a whole lot of work, but you think, eh, you know, I'm probably doing okay. But this morning, you would say, hey, I'm ready to get off the escalator. I'm ready to make this thing a priority. I'm ready to go get my freedom. I'm ready to go get my peace. I'm ready to go get my joy. If that's you and you're in this place this morning, you would say, you know what, Pastor Chris, I'm here, I'm with you. That's me, I need to get off this escalator. I need to take this more serious. If that's you, could you just raise your hand real quick all across this place? 
I'm ready to get off the escalator. I need to get off that escalator. I need to have that relationship with Jesus. As Pastor Dan begins to sing, we're gonna open up these altars. If, if you raise your hand and say, that's me, I, I need to get off that escalator. If, if, you, if you have something that you're looking for, that you're frustrated that God hasn't given you yet, peace, joy, freedom, and you're ready to claim that, I want you to come too so we can pray with you. If that's you, you raise your hand, please come. Please come. We got a couple of minutes. We're gonna pray with you for a couple of minutes. If you wanna stay in your seat, we're just gonna ask you to sing this song with us. Maybe just raise your hands in worship if you feel comfortable. But if that's you, you're ready to get off that escalator, I want you to come. Would you please come? Altar team, would you come and help us pray? Found in your hands, found in your hands, fullness of joy. Every fear suddenly wiped away. Here in your presence, in all of my gaze, now fade away. And every crowd no longer on display Here in your presence Heaven is Heaven is trembling in awe of your wonder The kings in their kingdoms are standing identified as a follower of Christ, but that we would live as a follower of Christ. Father, I pray that you would grow us, that you would mold us, that you would make us. Father, I pray that we would not just be content to have access to you, but that we would do the work to be able to embrace every gift every freedom, every joy that you've given us. 
God, I pray that you would grow us and make us more like you. Let us walk in your image. Let us walk like you. Let us think like you. Let us act like you. Let us embrace those you would embrace. Let us be looking for lost sinners and embrace them when they come into the family. God, we love you and we thank you. Go with us this week. Let us be more like you. And Father, let us not be content to just ride the escalator and go through the motions. Let us do the work that it takes to become more like you. We love you and we thank you, Lord Jesus. In your name we pray. Amen. If you're down here praying, we're going to ask you to continue until the Holy Spirit's done working with you. Go. Be blessed. We love you. Stay off the escalator this week. Be everything that God wants you to be. Have a great week. Thank you.